Father, help me to pray for us, for this psalm. Give us grace, Father, to to rest in the truth of it, to be convicted by the the reality of which it speaks, and to be led through uh, the various sufferings that we are enduring and will endure that we might be led to a point of great worship even in the midst of this, both as a testimony of your greatness, um, but also uh, that it would redound to our joy and our happiness. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I thought we'd give just a word. Uh, Luke kind of led us into the fact that we'd be looking at the Psalms over the summer. And just give you a quick word why. You know, we're studying Matthew and and um, sometimes it's good to take a break in the summer because uh, you all take vacations and, and the group gets a little transitory and uh, we like to preach sermons in the summer that are connected, which all the Psalms will be, but not necessarily contingent. You know, when we went through the first four chapters of Matthew, they really hang on one another and to, to miss every third or every fourth or when people get missing, it's really hard to keep uh, the flow of, of the book. And also in the summer sometimes, I think, uh, particularly in Matthew, it's 28 chapters long. That's a long book. And I think it's sometimes it's helpful to take breaks uh, so that we can collect people again. And, and that way it, it doesn't muddle the overall flow of the book. So we're going to look at the Psalms, these cries of the heart, if you will. And um, the, the Psalms are very instructive to us regarding how we can worship God Uh, in the midst of sorrow and joy. Uh, Psalm 13, for example, is a psalm of lament. That means it's a personal cry. There are corporate laments when the whole nation's threatened. There are individual laments when when we may be threatened individually. And and it's a personal cry of of great sadness towards God over the situations in our life. Um, This psalm in particular is very instructive for us that as we face difficulty, uh, the psalm helps us move from despair over the situation uh, to delight in that God is still able to work powerfully through this. I I, I mean, I will tell you that 100% certainty, you will suffer. It it may be in varying degrees, one from another. All of us are going to face this. All of us need this psalm. We need this, this, this lament that David has written. It kind of starts out with this, this cry of dereliction. It moves to, to God, we're pleading for grace and mercy. And then it moves us to a, a word of praise. So the, the pain moves to prayer and the prayer moves to praise. And so we are all going to face this. We're all going to need this psalm. We're all going to need to know how do we migrate or do we just languish in despair as so many do. And so if you will, turn with me to Psalm 13, and we'll take a look at this. And it is for the stout of heart, but I think in it you're going to find, as with God, you always find just this, this measure of great grace that is for us. So Psalm 13, David writes, this is a psalm of David, you see in the superscription. He says in verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So you see this this, um, cry. We know David wrote it. We don't know the exact context in which the psalm comes out of. Um, We're not left clueless, though. You can see from the content of his cries that this isn't a minor disappointment. This isn't a little snag in life. These are profound and prolonged issues he's facing. I, I mean, leading him to despair, even this spiritual depression over God. Uh, we don't think it has anything to do with sin. It's not, well, the, the sin is in your life. We quickly often want to look at sin as the source of depression, and, and it can be, and we're going to hit that, and some psalms do deal with that. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. This psalm has no mention of sin, no repentance, no acknowledgement of guilt. It has none of those marks. It's simply this, this trial, and I think in part, perhaps David is even just making it context less, if you will, so that it becomes words for us that we can now use in our own appealing to God. That it isn't driven to a specific context, which you you can't say, well, I can't use that psalm because I'm in this context and not that. It's just, it's language for all of us to use to God. And you see this fourfold description, this crying, how long, how long, how long? I mean, clearly, there's this prolonged time. You know, time, when you're in pain, can be very destructive. Time can just work against you. It can really cause and lead to flagging of faith. Arthur Fuller once said that um, it's not the intensity of the pain. It's the length of the pain that often leads us most fainting before God. He's saying, how long? I mean, look at the words with me. I mean, if you've lived 25 years, you've surely had some measure of experience with this. How long will you forget me forever? Clearly, David is speaking. Uh, There's an abandonment. There's an estrangement. There's the perception in David's mind that God has, has ignored his plight and that it's gone on forever. He's appealed to God. He's prayed to God. But you know what? Nobody's listening. He follows it with, how long will you hide your face from me? That that David is not experiencing the presence of God at all. That that God has turned aside as if he doesn't care. You know, you tend to look at that what you care over. But if you don't give a care about something, you just turn your back to it. And then he says, how long will I have to take counsel in my own soul? In in the Hebrew there, it's... He's saying, how long will I have thought after thought after thought of how I'm going to extricate myself from this situation? That that God doesn't care about the weightiness on his soul. And and, and that David's now thinking, what am I going to do to get out of the jam? It's like what we do. Hey, we've prayed ten times, we've prayed a dozen times, now I've got to take matters in my own hands. And it's that sense of God has abandoned us. He's isolated us. We're, We're alone. We only have ourselves to deal with this issue. Then he says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Don't know if that could have been some threat to David in terms of his kingship. That the enemies, 
You know, why is it sometimes that the enemies of God seem to prevail so easily against the people of God? Where is he as a protector? Where is he as a defender? I mean, you can imagine, you hear David groaning under this pain. Now, let me remind you, David doesn't think that God forgets. We're not to take these two verses and think that God can possibly forget or God turns his face. I mean, God can't forget. The same David wrote Psalm 139 where he says, if I go to the height of heaven, he's there. And if I, if I drop to the depths of Sheol there, your right hand will hold me fast. David knows God can't forget. But he's experiencing the pain. He's expressing the pain that he feels over the absence of God's intervention in the trials of his life. And he's just giving word to that. And I think because he knew that God could intervene makes this all the more difficult. If God were one of these these open theistic gods that, well, we really can't do all this, then he might not feel so bad. But the fact that God is sovereign, the fact that God is good, almost sometimes makes our pain worse. So the psalm is really written to those in prolonged struggle, in despair, spiritual depression. When you haven't felt the pleasure of God, you haven't tasted of his goodness. He hasn't answered your prayers. You've been in trial upon trial. That's what he's speaking to. It could be a, it could be a physical thing, facing cancer, or prolonged illness, just chronic illness in your life. Or it could be something more um, parental, that you have children who are just making decisions that are self-destructive over and over and over You've prayed for them, and you've prayed for them. Or it could, be, it could be relational, that your parents are just sliding down into dementia or struggle, and it's, just, it's a prolonged battle trying to care for them and love them. You're wondering, God, where is your deliverance? Or in your marriage, you've prayed for grace, you've prayed for your husband or your wife to be this or that, and there has been no answer, and you've prayed, and it's been years where your marriage has never turned the corner. It's been in a constant state of disharmony and conflict. You just wonder, God, where are you in this? It's a tremendous struggle. It may be financial. You're just struggling to make ends meet. I mean, it's just you can never get ahead of the debt that you're carrying. You think you will, and then an expense comes up. And God, where will relief, when will relief come? It's a, it's, a, it's a psalm for us in this world. Those of us who are really struggling with long-term, for some, incapacitating struggles. And it gives words for us to express to God. You know, C.S. Lewis spoke of this when he uh, was watching his wife, Joy Davidman, die of cancer. Uh, of course, C.S. Lewis, you know, he was a British author and professor in the mid-20th century, early and mid-20th century. He married uh, late in life, actually married an American woman, and, um, and they only had about four years together. He even married her knowing she had cancer at the time. He, he writes how uh, on his wedding day he feels as both a bridegroom and a widower at the same time. And so he wrote uh, a book called A Grief of Observed, And here's what he wrote about the sense that David's speaking about, that sense that you have when when you just don't think God is caring adequately for you 
or loving you or he's abandoned you. Here's what he writes. When you're happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and you turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. That's the way it often feels. Perhaps some of you have, you would say, yes, that gives word to the way I feel. This psalm is helpful for us as a people because it calls us to express our struggle, not suppress it, but to express it. You know, when the non-Christian goes through trials, they have to deal with trials the same. I mean, they're faced with the same issues we're, we're faced with, but, but you will watch the non-Christian move towards a greater pessimism about life, or they'll move to denial over the situation, or they'll try to laugh it off, or they'll dilute their struggles by alcohol or, or continual serial relationships or drugs. They have to deal with it. But the Bible gives us the freedom to express this honestly, to wrestle with God. That's why the Psalms are so popular among us. Because they give words to the way we're feeling. But I don't want you to think, I don't want you to think incorrectly that this Psalm gives us license to complain to God. Or, or the psalm doesn't give us license to get angry at God. A lot of people say, oh, you can get angry at God. He can handle it. Well, you, he can handle it. There's no question about that. But he's not calling us to be angry. In fact, Florence had sent me um, some articles by Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan by a couple hundred years. And he talks about it is good to groan before God, but not grumble. There is a place of groaning where we are expressing the legitimacy of the pain that we're having in this life. It's something analogous to Jesus, groaning, if you will, at the tomb of Lazarus. His deep sadness over death and the pain that death brings. But that's not grumbling. Grumbling has to do with sitting in judgment over God, a murmuring against God for who he is and what he's done. It's a, it's a judgment as to the value and the actions and the outcome of what God does. And the psalmist is not calling us to do that. Groan, but we don't grumble. But I think this psalm is also significant for us because it speaks to the honesty of scriptures. The Bible deals with life straight up. You know, the Bible has no concern. There's this, there's this internal honesty with the scriptures. that The Bible makes great claims about the sovereign goodness of God, the sovereign power of God, the sovereign love of God, and yet the saints for a time will suffer. And, and, and the saints for a time may waver and doubt in faith. That the Bible doesn't hold itself out, and nor do we do anyone any favors by holding out the Bible as some cause effect or some binary logic if you do this good then you'll get this good and if you do this bad then you'll get punished this way it isn't that way in scripture you have many verses that speak to the like in deuteronomy the blessings if you do this and the curses if you do this that is part of the scriptures but the wisdom literature in particular gives us these room it allows mystery to come into play that it's difficult, life is complex, 
In fact, Christopher Wright wrote a book called The Mission of God, says this, For the sake of the world, then, we must take this tone of voice in the wisdom literature seriously with its awkward questions, its probing observations, its acceptance of the limitations of our finitude. It is part of our missional responsibility to do so. The presence of such texts in our Bible is a challenge to unthinking dogmatism that misapplies undoubted biblical principles in circumstances where they're not relevant. Such biblical texts, like the one we're reading here, are also a rebuke to the simplistic naivete that draws automatic and reversible direct lines between faith and material rewards. He says, he says that this wisdom literature, if you don't take the warnings, it ends up in folly, and it ends up in the lies of so-called prosperity gospel on the one hand, or in the problem-denying triumphalism the worst kinds of arrogant fundamentalism on the other. In other words, it's difficult. We don't have all the answers. Our minds are limited. We try to perceive our experiences and they don't fit. You will have times of struggle in this life. The Bible doesn't have a direct answer for every time, but it does point us to God, and that's the difference. Many Christians are good at expressing their sorrow like David has, but this is where they stop. And many Christians lose their way The psalmist doesn't stop. We want to continue on the psalm. So I want to give you license. I want to give you encouragement to express the grief and the sorrow that you have. There is legitimate pain in this life. This is not your best life. This is not. And there is a place to express that sorrow. But we don't stop. And that's what David does. He he goes on. You see him turn to God and appeal for mercy. But I want you to see how David turns to God. You know, there are many prayers, actually, in, in ancient literature that say, how long is the problem going to go on? Interesting, though, in these pra- pagan prayers that we have, it never is addressed to God. It's just a how long to the ceiling. And yet David addresses his prayer, how long to God? And notice how he does it. He doesn't go to God as some capricious or, or, or some fickle deity where we don't know where he's going to land. He goes to God as if he knows God. Notice how he says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Now, that that word for Lord is Yahweh. There's a personal relationship that he has with God. He understands God as his personal God. He says, my God, that term of possession. So David is going to God knowing there is a love relationship between the two. He isn't fatigued. He isn't flagged. He isn't casting God out. He's going to him. But notice how he goes to him. He doesn't ask for immediate deliverance. He doesn't ask why. That's really one of the most frequent questions a pastor will get is, why this, why this, why this? He doesn't ask why. And do you notice, too, that he doesn't ask for an immediate response. He doesn't demand from God an explanation as to why the way things are. He doesn't do that. He just says, consider me. And the word for consider is to turn your face to me. It's that great blessing from Aaron, if you remember. Make your face to shine upon us. If the face of God is towards you, you can go through anything. And so he's saying, just consider me. Look to me and answer me. Give me words. Give me the words of life. Open the scriptures to me. Teach me. Instruct me. You know, I I would just, as a side note for you all, in the middle of conflict, scripture, I think, can be argued, uh, comes alive more in the midst of trial. When we're afflicted, we see the word of God. And I, I want to I just throw that to you because 
to encourage you to be soaking your mind in the scriptures now. That, that sometimes when you appeal to the scriptures immediately in the midst of trouble and you haven't been, it, it feels often clumsy. And, and God will speak to you. God will give you words. God will answer your questions, at, even at night, particularly for the minds that are being soaked in scriptures all the day. So scriptures have a power and a life in themselves, but particularly in times of trial, the scriptures become very real. You will be in a, you will be in a deep trial a year from now. You'll turn to Psalm 13, and it will have a weight that it doesn't have right now for you. So he says, consider me and answer me. And then he says, light up my eyes. You know, dim eyes are an expression for death, for decrease in life. But, but eyes that are enlightened uh, are both illuminated with understanding, but it speaks to the joy and the satisfaction of life. I think about um, Jonathan, if you remember. In 1 Samuel chapter uh, 14, uh, Saul had made a foolish uh, vow that nobody was to eat in this battle with the Philistines. And uh, and. Jonathan hadn't heard, and the men were famished. They had been fighting, they were struggling, they were dragging. And Jonathan, his son, had not heard this vow that they were not to eat. And so he's walking fatigued and famished through the woods, and he sees honeycomb, and he dips his staff in there and and eats some of it. You can imagine fatigued, facing death, tired, weary, hungry, and you eat some fresh honey. And it said his eyes brightened. In other words, that nutrients of the honey began to strengthen his body. And what David's praying here is, revive me. Give me a joy in the midst of my trial. Revive my soul, is what he's saying. And then he gives reasons. He says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Appeal to God with reasons, is what David's saying. Now, we don't know if this is a literal death. It could have been. David, both as a soldier and a king, faced death many times. Maybe it was a a figurative death that he's just facing great challenges. But either way, he's saying his situation is so desperate, he's saying, lest I sleep the sleep of death, Father, brighten my eyes, give me life, revive me. He's teaching us how to appeal to God. But he also says this, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. He's saying, God, I need you to revive me, not just for my soul, but for the glory of your name. Remember now, David is, David is God's anointed. And so when enemies prevail over the anointed of God, so they prevail against God. And so David is praying not just for his own deliverance, but for the vindication of God's name. He's concerned about God's name. That if David goes under, then what does that say about the God of David? And so it draws our eyes to when we pray. It's not just about my self-deliverance but it's about the name of God that is upon me because I'm a child of God. And so when we pray to God and we plead, consider me, look to me, light my eyes, I'm thinking of, yes, my situation and the name of God. So Christian, for the Christian here, you can come to God at any time. There is no pain so deep that you cannot appeal to God. For the Christian, you have been reconciled to God. You've been adopted through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ. And so as a child of God, you can say, oh, Lord, my God. That you have that right. Jesus was born under the law, born of a woman to redeem those under the law and give them full rights as sons and daughters. That you can ask God to revive you, strengthen you. That you can plead for his glory to be manifest in your life. Is that how you pray? 
I mean, do you consider that when you pray? Do you think about the, the glory of God? Do you think about your adoption, that you are adopted? And so when you appeal to God, like in Hebrews 4, that you can boldly go into his throne in your time of need for grace and mercy, mercy that you can confidently go to him? <clears throat> Before stepping up here, I was reminding myself that if I, though I am evil, if I know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask him? So I was asking him for the Spirit, reminding myself that if I, though I am evil, I love to give good gifts to my children, how much more will God give me the Spirit, giving me confidence that he will give the Spirit to me and through me and in you? So you see this psalm begin to make a turn. He, he utters this pain. He cries forth to God. He's expressing what's on his heart. But then he doesn't stop there and turn to pessimism and anger, but he moves to pleading with God. And we see how he prays. Consider me, look to me, answer me, light my eyes, revive my soul. I'm flagging in faith, Father, revive me. And then he moves, and look in verse 5, because he takes what could be seen as a sharp left turn. He says, but I. I love the con... uh, Forget the English word for that word, but. Uh, I love the word, but. I didn't want to say that because I knew the way it would sound. But in Scripture, it constantly moves you to look at something different. But I have trusted in the steadfast love. Where you think he might go into a complaint, he goes into confidence. He makes a vow to God. Look at what he says. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Folks, the situation hasn't changed. There is no deliverance as of yet. He is making an intentional move to praise God. He is making, the, it's not accidental. He just didn't bump into this. He's saying, I will now praise God. It's profound. And why? Well, well look at what he goes to. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's kind of a chiasm there, the the first and the last are synonymous, and the two middle are synonymous to one another. He's looking backwards. This is what God is. This is what he's done for me. He thinks of God's steadfast love. That word is hesed, or it's a, it's a, a loyal love. It's a, it's a faithful love. It's a loving kindness. David is intentionally dwelling upon not his circumstances, which we will tend to build a house on, But he is, and and really, you see when people are struggling so much, they can become myopic in terms of their problems, that their problems become sovereign in their life. And David's saying, no, 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 I'm going to focus on God and his steadfast love. Now, for David, what would this mean? Well, I think in a minimum, it would speak to David thinking the history of God with the people of Israel. God making a covenant with Abraham. God promising to Abraham, I will. Bless the nations through this people. Your enemies will not prevail. And and he may have been drawn back to Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, when God is ratifying, confirming the covenant with Abraham, God's made a promise to Abraham. And he's saying, I will be faithful to all my promises. You will never find me flagging on one promise. And so here's what he does. He takes these animals and has Abraham slaughter, just cut animals in half, just slice them in half, put them on the side, and create an aisle to walk through. Now, this was often done in pagan cultures where a strong king would be making a treaty with a weak king. 
And the weak king would be forced to walk through those split animals to remind him that if he disobeys the strong king, he will be as the animals are. It was a good inducement to obedience. It was helpful towards obeying the strong king. The strong king would never go through there. Why? Because the strong king has nothing to lose. He's in the power position. He doesn't even need to make the covenant. And so in Genesis 22, when God is showing his faithfulness to Abraham, Abraham doesn't walk through the split animals. God moves through the split animals, saying, this is how faithful I am. If I don't do what I say I will do, then I will be torn asunder. That's the faithfulness, the chesed, the faithful love of God. But that covenant had been ratified with David, right? David himself. Had a covenant made, God said, I will build a house in your name. And so David is looking back. This is what God has done, his delivering power, his glory. He has dealt bountifully. The word bountifully actually means complete. He has dealt completely with me. He has cared for me. So David is looking back, and looking back at the faithfulness of God moves him forward to say, I will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Joy has to give word. You have to give word when you have joy. And he begins to sing to the Lord. This is in the midst of the conflict. When he says that I will rejoice in your salvation, I'm thinking here that his faith in God is not simply for deliverance, that he is rejoicing in how he will be saved from this trouble. But I think it's more than that. I think it is that, but it's also in the salvation that comes at the end. Because the troubles that David we're having were only an indication of the fall that we always will have troubles in this life jesus says you'll always have troubles in this life and so i think david was looking toward that day when all troubles will be removed and all deliverance will be had that god will restore and reconcile all things to himself so, so this is how david moves from a position of pain to pleading to praise he looks back at the faithfulness of god and he moves forward looking no he's going to deliver me He is going to save me and redeem me and restore me. So for the Christian here, how do you handle this? When you look back as New Testament believers, what do we do with this? You know, you're facing a trial. You're facing a conflict. What do you do? How do you move? You express the pain. That is natural. You move to pleading with God for deliverance. Now you've been adjusted a little bit in terms of how. But then what do you do? How do we move from the pleading to the praising? And I would say, at a minimum, we contemplate Christ. Because Christ is the quintessential expression of God's faithfulness. In Christ, we have redemption of sins. In Christ, we have deliverance from death. In Christ, we have the coming of the promised spirit, confirming to us and and, and sealing us with this promised inheritance of salvation. In Christ, we have a constant interceder. In Christ, we have a marvelous head who now is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. In Christ, we have all things, just as we sang. And so we contemplate Christ. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, One new discovery of the glory of Christ's face will do more towards scattering clouds of darkness in one minute than examining old experiences by the best marks that can be given through a whole year. In other words, you look back at your whole year and you look at all the great things that have happened to you. One look at Christ, one discovery of his glory and his beauty as an 
expression of God's faithfulness. Remember, Christ leads us to the Father. And so you look at Christ and his cross and his powerful resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement, and all of a sudden it begins to put the trials of the day against the backdrop of his glory. So I would encourage you to contemplate Christ, to think upon Christ, but also don't just look back at Christ. Make the commitment that you will praise God. Repent of your murmuring. Repent of your grumbling. Turn to Christ. Draw a brother or sister to to look forward. I am going to commit to be faithful in worship because God is faithful. You know, there's a story once that Charles Spurgeon and a friend were walking through a field and they came across a barn and the barn had a weather vane on top and the weather vane said, God is love. And Charles Spurgeon took issue, that pastor of London pastor of the 19th century, and he said, take issue with it because the wind blows differently and the weather vane's spinning all over the place. And his friend chided him and said, no, 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 that is good because no matter which way the wind blows, God is yet love. God is yet faithful. God is always there. God is always committed to his people. And so it represents well the love of God. So we look back and we look forward that faithfulness. That you, would, you would make the decision, I will praise him. Let me give you an example. For example, in the book of Habakkuk, this, this prophet was told that the Chaldeans were going to come and clean house in Israel, and the way they cleaned house was destructive. They would, they would fillet their prisoners. They would, they would do things to them that would make you cringe, and they were going to come as an instrument of God's judgment upon the people of Israel, and he couldn't believe it. And he's pleading with God through three questions. And here's the very last few verses in the book. When he knows it's coming, he sees it, He's standing there, and here's what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer, and he treads so that I can tread on high places. It's a decision that we make based upon the work of Christ, and that's what I would be calling you to. This is doable. This isn't just sermon talk on a Sunday morning. Read history. There are examples of men and women who have turned in faith in dire circumstances. Let me give you one. Alan Gardner, a missionary to islands down by the Falklands back in the mid-19th century. He, He went there, missionary endeavor, and uh, long story, but just met um, thieves and thugs, the tribes that they were trying to minister to, in which the gospel had never penetrated, kept running them out time and time and time again, threatening, stealing their provisions, ended up stealing a lot of their positions as they, provisions as they tried to minister. Anyways, he ends up, of course, that Arctic winter begins blowing on, and uh, the boat runs aground. They're there with few provisions of which they began rationing. And they knew they were going to die. There was no help coming. And, um, and eventually they would die. A party would finally be sent to retrieve them, but it would come late. They found his body uh, by his boat. But what they found was a journal. And they found a journal by his body. And here's what he wrote on one of the last days of his life. He said this, he was dying of starvation, and he wrote out passages of the Bible. One of them was Psalm 34. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they, 
that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. And then he wrote this in handwriting that was feeble. So it was right before he died. He said, I am overwhelmed. Now, this is a man who is laying by a boat dying, hasn't eaten, threatened. And here's what he writes. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now, that, that's divine. That's, that's a, a man turning by faith to God in the midst of trial. Yet I will rejoice in the God, my Savior. So, people, th- this psalm is for us. Suffering, 100% certain. We're going to experience pain. The psalmist describes how we express it legitimately, rightly. It turns us to prayer, to plead with God, both for our deliverance, strength to endure until the deliverance comes and for his name to be honored. And then it moves us that in spite of our circumstances, we move towards faith and praise and worship that we will yet rejoice because what we have coming is glorious. You know, Spurgeon would always say, cast your eye to the next life. Never lose sight of that which he has guaranteed to you. And you will find rejoicing come in the midst of struggle. So let's, um, let me pray for us. And then uh, I would like to call the elders and servers forward for communion. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Thank you for the mercy that you have given to us, that we can look back now and see your steadfast, your loyal love for us in Christ. Thank you for that as a, as a rock, as a foundation, as a refuge for us as we encounter various struggles. Father, we, we acknowledge to you that we have no idea that what will befall us in this year ahead. We have no idea the struggles and the trials with which we as a church will walk through, both perhaps corporately or individually. But Lord, we would ask for grace in the name of Jesus through the power of the Spirit that we might express rightly our grief, but turn in prayer to you and praising you for all that we have, all the riches that we have in Christ, the the unsearchable riches that we have in the Son. So Father, may we be a people who though we suffer, we are a people who yet rejoice in the midst of our suffering, declaring your worth and your glory. Father, thank you for the grace to give us this text this morning. May you bring truth to bear on the souls of the people here, that they would be incrementally encouraged towards a greater love for the Son. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.